Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So I find that fairly often when I think of innovation, I often limit the idea to solely within the context of technology. But the reality is that innovation can occur in all categories, including the consumer packaged goods space. So over the past decade, we've even seen the food that we eat radically transform, where just 10 years ago, the bulk of the average American's diet was comprised of foods manufactured with high fructose corn syrup. And we're now seeing a secular shift within the population towards healthier, wellness-focused alternatives. So that is why I'm very excited to announce Keith Belling, the founder of Pop Chips, as today's podcast guest. Keith was one of the pioneers of the Better For You food movement, scaling Pop Chips to be one of the leading brands in the snack aisle. However, Keith didn't just stop with his success with Pop Chips, and he's now throwing himself into a new venture that I am very pumped about. And that venture is called Right Rice, which is a healthy vegetable-based alternative to rice packed with protein that tastes way better than the cauliflower rice you're picking up at Trader Joe's. So in today's podcast, Keith and I discuss Pop Chips' founding story and how he and the team went about methodically building the brand. We'll also talk through what it takes to scale out a brand like Right Rice in its infancy and the challenges entrepreneurs face in forecasting demand and measuring what matters. So why don't we get started? Hey, Keith, how's it going? It's going great, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and thanks for taking some time. So why don't we start with some background on your career? First of all, probably like many entrepreneurs, what I found for me that my entrepreneurial career really came out of passion, you know, came out of finding things that I was interested in and excited to get involved in. And that really found, to me, created the path for how I became an entrepreneur. And, you know, I started actually as a real estate attorney and my plan was to go into real estate development. I never expected to be an attorney. In fact, when I was in law school, people used to laugh when I would tell them that I didn't want to practice law. That was before a lot of people did it like today. And (laughs) yeah, it was pretty funny because law school is not an easy path but a great education. And so I went to law school and my plan was to practice for a couple of years and then go into real estate development and team up with my brother and become partners in real estate development. And everything was perfect. Went to law school, worked at a great firm called Morrison and Forrester. I was in the real estate practice. And then I had a client, he owned some farmland in his real estate holdings. And in the sort of middle of all of his holdings, he had a little business called Ooh La La, which were coffee bars. And the next thing I knew, you know, I quit the firm. I took over the company. I knew absolutely nothing about starting businesses like that and set upon the path of building this business. And it was incredibly fun and engaging. And I just found that I loved it and have really never looked back. And ever since then, my path has just been getting involved in a variety of businesses that I'm passionate about. There's some entrepreneurs that I'm sure you've talked to and people know that flick a switch and go on to the next business. I'm probably the opposite. I have found in my case that I sort of toggle between businesses that I start that are my own. So in the late 90s and early 2000, like every good San Francisco entrepreneur, I did an internet company and, you know, better lucky than good. After we sold that, I found myself working with a handful of companies that I found interesting and spent time on just because I was interested in the businesses, but they weren't my business. So it was kind of fun to be involved and to learn from each of them. And then, you know, 
I guess it was about 2005, I had the idea of doing something in the natural food space. And in particular, in that case, my passion was snacking. I've always loved snacking. And I had found I was eating too many Doritos, like a lot of people. And I thought there had to be a better, healthier alternative out there. And when I started looking for it and couldn't find it, I thought, okay, I'm just crazy enough as an entrepreneur to go and try and tackle something like that. And I set upon creating what became Pop Chips. I'll share a personal anecdote here that's a total first world problem. But before we had pop chips in our snack room, I would always have that problem where I'd go into the snack room and all I'd see would be the Doritos or the Lay's and not want to commit to that. But now that we have pop chips, I can satisfy that craving without having to increase my risk of a heart attack. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Actually, I love hearing those stories because it's so personal. I mean, for me, I was going to the local deli by my office and I was buying my bag of Doritos and I was literally hiding them under my sandwich while I was in line. And I realized that I was not only hiding it for myself and I was a bit embarrassed to be eating something so unhealthy that that's where I just said, okay, I have to be able to do, there has to be something better out there. And what's more fun than going to the snack aisle to do research? Yeah. And I think that parlays well into talking more about Pop Chips's founding story, specifically, how should we think about scaling manufacturing in a supply chain if you've never before built a food-focused startup? Sure. So look, the first thing about starting something like this is it, at least for me, has to be a point of passion and something you're passionate about and interested in. And again, that was snacking for me. So it was great. And, you know, then we were looking around to find something that was differentiated because obviously you can't go into any business just because you're passionate about something. You have to go in with a good idea and an insight. And, you know, in this case, we ended up buying a rice cake manufacturing business. I looked at a lot of opportunities in the snack world to find, again, what was going to be something differentiated, you know, something that was healthy and tasted good, which was, you know, today a much easier problem to solve. But at that point, it was a real conundrum. And I looked around and we found this rice cake manufacturing business. What was interesting when I went through and took a look at the business for the first time, people talked about rice cakes as being puffed. And in fact, they were popped. I was listening to the noise and you you would take small little, you know, uh, pellets that were made out of either rice or corn and they were popped in these popping heads into the rice cakes. And I remember listening to that and thinking about it. And my big insight initially was, you know, that, that rice cakes were popped and that I could use that same technology to create a potato chip that was popped. And what was important about that is, unlike a lot of categories, the potato chip segment was really clearly defined between fried and baked. And everybody knew that anything that was fried tasted great, but was super unhealthy. And in the potato chip world, unlike your pies and your cakes, something that was baked just didn't taste good. And Frito had built a a very nice baked chip business, but it was really something that most people ate by default, right? There was no real better option. It had good nutritionals, but it just didn't taste that good. Kind of funny. It's kind of like cauliflower rice is today in the rice world. And so I knew that how well it was segmented between fried and baked. And so we had to find another paradigm. We had to find a way to communicate with consumers and popped quickly just came to mind as something that worked because everybody perceived it as being light and airy and healthy. And yet, you know, things like air popped popcorn or whatnot, you know, were actually a much healthier version of a snack. So when we found that you could actually pop a potato chip, it really gave us that ability to tell a story that gave us a subtle health message, you know, using the word pop, but still led with flavor and taste. And at some point, the rice cake manufacturing facility you guys started with was no longer able to meet the viral demand that you guys saw. So how did you go about scaling your manufacturing capacity going forward? Well, first of all, the good news is 
while we were a startup with Pop Chips, we actually had a pretty nice installed base for the rice cake business. So we had a plant and a facility and we had an R&D team and a lot of the things you need to build a manufacturing business. Because what you quickly learn, and anybody who's gone about this, is the last thing you want to do is manufacture for yourself when you're a startup because you have no sense of scale and volume. And you know at what point you want to make those investments, which can be considerable, not only in the plants and equipment, but also the people. And so in our case, we had this business that was doing, you know, at that point in time, about $10 million in rice cake sales. The plant had pretty ample, it was all private label, and the plant had really ample capacity to grow from there. But it gave us, again, sort of an installed base that enabled us to build a business, start to scale the business without really any further investment. And really our plan when we bought it was to be able to take the platform that we had and you can imagine sort of reduce our private label business as we grew our branded business. So again, it let us cover all of our fixed costs in the plant and really grow from there. So we had a real advantage. We had a, you know, a small but profitable manufacturing business that we could turn around and scale into manufacturing our own product. At the time, that was really important to us because nobody was doing what we were doing with pop chips. And there were a few rice cake manufacturers around the country and no one was doing what we wanted to do. And we didn't want to go to a co-packer and ask them to make it for us because as soon as you do that, it's no longer, you know, a sort of confidential kind of an enterprise. People are going to hear about it pretty quickly, no matter what anyone tells you. And we wanted to get out to the market and be first and do what we were doing. So having that plant was a real advantage to us. And then as far as scaling from there, the facility fortunately was built in a way that there's a good amount of capacity for us to grow with just, you know, bringing in some experts to help us lay out the equipment and, you know, both in terms of the popping heads that we use to make the potato chips, as well as the packaging and whatnot. So we had a, we had a good sized facility that enabled us to be able to scale. And, you know, we were able to grow within that plant for the first comfortably four or five years. And as you think about growing the branded business of Pop Chips, what were some ways that you intentionally built the brand? In terms of building the brand, I think the big focus for us was looking at the marketplace and saying we knew we weren't going to outspend Frito and the other incumbents in the space. You know, they're big established brands and you're never going to outspend them. So we knew from day one that it had to be about really a grassroots brand. I mean, we really had to get product into people's hands and really share pop chips with them, the brand and the product, and really engage consumers. And I was lucky. I remember when I was, you know, really building the pop chips brand, I would tell people that we wanted to be in the snack aisle, what vitamin water had done to the beverage aisle. And, you know, of course, I'm sure hundreds of people had that same vision because vitamin water was such an incredible explosive brand. But I really could see what they had done and how they approached the market. And I thought there was a real analogy in the snack aisle. And it was funny because after we did our big, you know, real round of financing, the CMO of Vitamin Water ended up joining our board. His name's Rohan Oza, who you may know, and Rohan's now at Kavu and a, obviously a very successful investor and entrepreneur in his own right. But he joined the board and, you know, really helped me hone that vision of how we wanted to build the brand as a grassroots brand. Again, learning a lot of stuff from what brands like Vitamin Water had done. And the focus of what we do is, again, very grassroots. It was a field marketing-driven business. We were getting product into people's hands in the right places and sharing the brand experience with people directly. And as we like to think, we, you know, we used to say one snacker at a time is how we're going to build the business. And you know, we wanted to find evangelists and empower them to share our brand with others and kind of build our brand from the ground up. 
Got it. That's really helpful. And then as you think about scaling pop chips from a people perspective, did you have any sort of lessons learned when you think about team building? There's nothing more important than building a team, that's for sure. As much as we like to think we can do it all ourselves, we can't. And so team building is just so, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Team building is just so critical and it's all about finding great people. And I think probably the best thing that we did was early on realizing how important the culture was and the kind of people we wanted around the table. You know, we very much had a work hard, play hard kind of an approach. And we were really thoughtful about how we built the team. You know, again, I sort of go back to the one snacker at a time. Our team was one person at a time. And for the first large number of employees, you know, I wanted to meet everyone. I had a co-founder, partner, Pat Turpin. We met everybody together. We spent a lot of time with people. We made sure that as often as we could, everybody, you know, would meet the other people that we were hiring. And, you know, we really felt it was important to build a culture and do that starting from day one. So the foundation of the business like a home was going to be something that could support the growth we were looking for. And you ultimately found immense success with pop chips, but you realized that you weren't done yet and had another business still left in you. So would love to hear more about the brand you're starting now. Sure, sure. So I guess it was about five or six years ago that uh, we had gotten to a point in Pop Chip's growth where, you know, for me, it was really time to bring in somebody who really was a manager and, you know, different kind of skill set as a leader. I think we had grown past an entrepreneurial organization and into something that really needed the right kind of leadership. And when we made the decision at that point, you know, many years ago to not sell the business, the obvious choice then was how we were going to find the right leadership. So, you know, we brought someone on. It was fully my choice. And, you know, when we recruited somebody to come in and run the business, whose really skill was, you know, leading teams and building to the next scale, to the next level, I should say. And for me, it was great. I, you know, we worked out a nice transition period. I've stayed on the board and chairman of the board for a number of years. And I go back to my earlier comment that I'm not a flick to switch kind of an entrepreneur and going on to the next business. I marvel at the people that can do that. In my case, I always felt like there was one more pop chips in me. I feel like I learned a lot and really loved what I had done. And, you know, I was going to find that right opportunity. But again, it wasn't just turn around, do some research and pick something. So for several years, I was active as an investor, joined some boards, you know, became an advisor. I was enjoying myself and really found that period to be a great learning experience. One of the business I've been very active with for about 20 years now is Restoration Hardware. I've been involved since early 2000. And during this period of having this time, I ended up joining the board and getting even more involved. And it's been such a rewarding business. But through all that, I found there was still this sort of itch to find, you know, what was going to be that next thing. And again, I wasn't actively looking. And one evening, somebody sent me over some vegetable rice. And I remember sitting there um, in my kitchen and eating it. And I really enjoyed it. And I started thinking about about rice, and I've always loved rice. I'm not alone. It's probably one of the most beloved foods in the world across every culture and ethnicity. But I just have always loved rice. I've loved it since I was a child. But I have found in the last years, kind of much along the lines of my Doritos issue, that I was eating a lot less rice. And I found it was a combination of sort of the empty calories and all the carbs, and I was feeling guilty, and I was just eating less and less rice compared to what I used to. And so this light bulb went off, I'd eaten this product and it was just a, you know, a a fresh made vegetable rice and it was really good. And I remember thinking, okay, maybe there's an opportunity in this category. And I quickly started talking to some people in my circle and I was really astounded at the consistency of the reaction I got from people, which was, I tended to get one of three reactions. Either I don't eat rice anymore, 
I eat way less rice than I used to, or I begrudgingly give it to my children because that's what they love to eat. I just wish it had more nutrition. And I was so surprised hearing that from so many people, and it completely confirmed my own intuition, again, much as it did with my experience with pop chips. It was kind of my personal feelings and passion that led me to think about it. And I, and I looked at this, and I looked at the space, and it was a 2 to $3 billion category with you know little to no innovation. And I started just kind of looking around. I started thinking about an approach to making a grain of rice that would taste good. Again, the beginning of it all, as I learned quickly with pop chips, again, one of our lines was, if it doesn't taste good, it isn't a snack. I mean, it doesn't matter how healthy it is and how good it is for you. It's an indulgence, and it has to taste great. And rice is the same thing. I mean, we all eat rice because it absorbs flavors and sauces so well. It's the perfect side. It's a, you know, it's a main dish. It goes at the base of every nutritious bowl you want to eat. It's just such a, it's, it's really one of the great foods. So I knew we had to find something that tasted great. And that was worth the forefront of the whole thing. And then to really hit the mark of what I was looking for, it had to be, you know, had to have a real nutritional profile and had to be easy to cook. So I spent, you know, probably six months, maybe nine months altogether, really working on developing the product. And again, I wasn't trying to be a cauliflower rice. I mean, very popular product that lots of people eat. Although, as I said, many of the people that I know that eat cauliflower rice sort of comment that, you know, they eat it a bit by default. It's super low carbs. It doesn't really have any nutritional value per se, but it doesn't really have the texture and taste of rice and it doesn't absorb. Yeah, it just doesn't taste. It's not as comforting as yeah, rice. Exactly. Right. It, it's almost there. No, it's not even almost. It's like 45% of the way there. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I was with a retailer yesterday in a meeting talking about right rice and she stopped me and she goes, oh, oh, I just won't eat cauliflower rice. She goes, that's just, it doesn't work for me. And she, I laughed at the way she described it. And what I wanted to do is come up with a rice again that had that toothsome you know, profile with, I'll describe the nutrition in a minute and how we put it together, but it all had to start with that. And so, you know, we worked at it. And, and what I also wanted was a, like, if you held it in your hand, I wanted a dry grain of rice. I wanted something that would go in my pantry, you know, not something that would go in the freezer section that if you defrosted it and didn't eat it, it was going to spoil. So I wanted something with a real shelf life, much like rice. And I actually found that we could blend a variety of vegetables together into creating what, again, if you put it in your hand, would look and perform like a grain of rice. And what exactly is your go-to-market plan now that you've iterated into a final product? So let me give you just a little more color about the product because it sort of informs how I think about going to market. But to me, what had to hit with the product was, again, this combination of taste and texture and flavor, as well as nutrition and ease of cooking. Again, rice seems like it should be such an easy thing to cook, but I know a lot of accomplished cooks that have trouble making rice, and hence all the rice cookers and Instapots today. So what we found was when we went upon blending the ingredients, we blended a combination of lentils and chickpeas and green peas and a bit of rice. So as we like to say, it's about 90% vegetables and a little less than 10% rice that we blended together into this grain. And if you held it in your hand, again, you would think it's just a short grain of rice. And, you know, and what we struck upon was, again, this baseline of taste and texture and it absorbs flavors just like rice, but it has 10 grams of protein, 5 grams of fiber, and about 40% less net carbs than a bowl of right rice. And it cooks super easy. It cooks in 10 to 12 minutes. It's, oh, wow. it's as easy as a saucepan and boiling water. In fact, for most of the meetings I've had with investors and retailers, I would have my assistant ship a you know, electric burner to my hotel room, a saucepan and a measuring cup. 
and I would uh, and I would make right rice in the room, put it in a Tupperware, and bring it to the meeting. It was that easy to make. So those are kind of pillars: were you know taste, nutrition, and ease of cooking. And once we got there, you know, then my my sense was, how do we take this to market? And you know, I had an early vision or goal, which was I thought, wouldn't this be great to take this to Amazon and Whole Foods and be you know the case study for a brand about how Whole Foods and Amazon would work together on launching a new brand. Because to date, they really had never done that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're obviously lots of brands together now, but they've never launched anything together. And it was funny, John, when I had that idea and I told people, they laughed at me and said, oh gosh, you know, first of all, at Amazon, you're not even going to have people to talk to anymore, let alone anybody to collaborate. <laughs> you know, so, so good luck. But I went and I met with Whole Foods. And of course, both Whole Foods and Amazon were completely independent paths. But we went to Whole Foods and presented it to the buyer and you know, she loved the product, saw the immediate need and opportunity. Again, this is a large stale category that has seen really very little innovation in a long time. So she loved the product. And, you know, with a matter of days, we worked out a national launch in Whole Foods. And I was running a parallel path with Amazon. And they were very excited about the brand. And in fact, I ended up talking to people and getting involved with, uh, they have a a variety of groups up there. I have a brand accelerator group that we got connected with and they, you know, ended up kind of taking us through the Amazon process. And one thing led to another and we actually had, you know, meetings in Austin with Whole Foods and Amazon people around the table working together to help us launch the brand. So that was that was really exciting to see that come to fruition because none of us thought it would actually happen. So some of those uh, crazy visions and dreams we have actually come true. So, so, yeah, so we launched, that was in February. So just three and a half months ago, we launched and we're super excited about getting the brand out to the market. We're now working on some other retail that we'll be, you know, doing down the road. We had a three month exclusive with Whole Foods. They've been, you know, really great partners and as has Amazon. You know, the really interesting thing is how I think about my learnings from Pop Chips, supply chain, manufacturing, building teams and marketing, because there's really such a learning experience that you get and how you think about being efficient and building a brand today. And in these early stages where you likely see some exponential growth, how do you think about forecasting demand when you have such limited data? Look, it's one of the toughest things to do, and especially where you're trying to scale a brand quickly. I can tell you in our first two years at Pop Chips, and I'm only partially joking, I don't think we had a forecast right in any month. It's just so hard to do. And, you know, you think you're on it, you think you know what you're doing, you've got smart people around the table, you know, you're doing your demand forecasts and everything else. And it's just the only thing you know for sure is you really don't know. Or as I like to say, you know, you're going to be some degree of right and some degree of wrong. The learnings with Right Rice versus Pop Chips, though, is, you know, we had a unique opportunity to own our own manufacturing with Pop Chips. And it's not for the faint of heart. You know, we had 90 to 100 people probably in our manufacturing business as we scaled that we were managing and running. It's a complicated business. So there's while there's some real benefits to having your own manufacturing, there's obviously a, a lot of management headaches and, and issues and costs. So in the case of Right Rice, I made the decision early on that we would collaborate and find a co-packer. And the great news about that, we have somebody that I had a relationship with. They loved what we were doing. They wanted to get involved, not only as a manufacturer, but as a partner. And, you know, really saw the opportunity to scale it together. And so what it does give us the ability to have a lot more flexibility in how we grow, as opposed to the issues you have, as I said, where you own your own plant and you're running shifts and you're stacking inventory. You know, now I've got a co-packer and a 3PL 
and it just makes it so much easier for us to forecast and makes it sort of safer for us if we miss. You know, I have a product with a nice shelf life. It's not perishable. You know, so holding inventory, I'd rather have too much than too little. And at the same time, you know, I have a business that can flex. And if we have some opportunities to really scale, these guys are able and ready to do that. That's wonderful. And are there any other lessons learned from pop tips that you specifically plan to apply at Right Rice? So I probably think about team. You know, we built an amazing team of people at Pop Chips, but it was a large team and we built a field marketing organization and a field sales organization. I go back to my notion of building a brand, you know, grassroots brand. That's what you needed in that period of time. And I think, you know, at Pop Chips, following on the model of vitamin water, we had one of the best field marketing teams in the country. We had a really great group of people. And in today's world, I think, you know, the cost to build an organization like that is incredible. And it, not only the cost, but the difficulty of finding that talent. What I've learned is the role social media plays today and influencers to, you know, help you really build a brand and a presence and drive awareness and trial in ways that you really couldn't do without a field marketing team 10, 15 years ago. And how do you think about building the right rice brand quantitatively over time? So Basically, what kind of KPIs are you going to track in regards to your field marketing or investment in social media influencers to gauge whether any of this is actually effective? Well, look, at some level, I'm just a believer in building a business and trusting the process and, and knowing what you're doing because there's a lot of ups and downs and what happens with a business at the beginning that it's hard to throw a bunch of KPIs and objectives at it. I think of it a little bit like public relations. There's a lot of people that are scared of investing in PR because it's so hard to measure. I think it's either you trust it or you don't. In a business like this, look, the first thing that's most important is seeing the consumers engage and like your product. One of the exciting things with Pop Chips was very early on seeing lots of consumer engagement and excitement and knowing that we had something people liked and got. And we're seeing that probably even more so with Right Rice. Now, am I seeing it more just because of the role social media plays and the amplification of people's voices? Possibly. But to me, that's the most important thing right now is just people like the product and the engagement we're seeing and people want to share it with their audiences and their friends and their followers. So that's a big part of it. Look, I mean, we're too early to be talking about velocity and repeat and the obvious things that we're going to want to understand as we go along. But, you know, look, I'm focused on, you know, seeing the right level of growth seeing engagement from consumers. You know, the other side of it to me is having a product with really good gross margins. I, I think that's obviously one of the critical pieces for building a business today is, you know, you need a solid foundation to build it from. So we look at lots of different things and probably be smarter about it six months in or eight months in than I am now because it's still so new. That's great. And you had mentioned your work as a board member with Restoration Hardware earlier. Do you have any advice for how we can be as impactful and succinct as possible in the boardroom? That's a great question. Look, the role that I think board members and advisors play, and, and I think this is just as applicable in a small startup as it is in a big company, is I think leadership should surround themselves with people that have a passionate point of view, you know, that care about what they're doing and have a point of view. And, and then I think at the end of the day, in a lot of cases, it's kind of up to the leadership, you know, much as my company now, for me to listen to people's points of view and make a decision. So I like to think that what's important is to have a point of view and be passionate about it and believe in it, you know, articulate it clearly. Like you said, I mean, you don't want to 
take up the whole board meeting, listening to yourself talk, but, you know, have a point of view and share it and have a variety of people that have a point of view and share it. And then you have a robust discussion and make some decisions. And that's a lot. Like when I help people as an advisor, that's what I tell them. I go, look, if I want to always be right, I'll have my mom and my sister and my cousin on my board and I will always be the smartest guy in the room. At least they'll tell me that. But if, if you really want to do something, I think put some people around you that will challenge your thinking, be willing to listen to them, but also be willing to trust your your own instincts and you know make some decisions, but do it after listening to a few people and getting their point of view. That's great. So shifting to the last part of the podcast, which centers around the title, pattern recognition, what are some consistent patterns you see across successful CPG businesses? So I'm probably about as not scientific as you can be. And I, I tend to think about these things just in terms of, you know, very simply product market fit. So, you know, I believe in innovation. I think people are tired of me too products. And I think when you have something that's truly differentiated and a story to tell, and there's a market need for it, I think those are the things that I tend to find myself motivating towards and getting excited about. And, you know, you see it in businesses and the actual product, sometimes it's design. I mean, I love what, you know, guys like Eric Ryan did at Method and then with Ollie, and now he's got a new business, you know, disrupting categories, you know, with great design and, you know, clarity of message and simplicity of execution. So, um, you know, that's probably, I think about it. And, and look, I also tend to believe in entrepreneurs and leaders who, again, I'm going to come back to my own personal experience, have a passion for what they're doing. And you see that. There's no straight line of success. There's nobody finds something and it just grows and goes really well. We all hit forks in the road and, you know, find difficult, you know, times to make difficult decisions and choices. And, you know, you want to invest in or partner with the kind of leaders that kind of have the tools to make the right decisions at the right time and, and not be afraid to zig and zag. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And then on that former point around product market fit and differentiation, Look, I think Right Rice is a phenomenal idea, which means that a lot of other people who are entrepreneurs likely think the same. So how do you think about differentiating in the long term? I'm sure you dealt with this at Pop Chips too, of copycat brands or private label brands popping up. <laughs> yes, yes. As I like to say, people always go, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And my answer <laughs> to that is, my answer is, you're right. Just don't flatter me too much. <laughs> Look, there was a point I had a board meeting you know, I can't remember how many years ago for pop chips. And I did a, a couple of slides for the board and, you know, the notion of popped potato chips was a relatively small category. And because of our popularity, I mean, there were literally 15 branded pop chip products and five private label. And I remember looking at that going, oh my God, this is just crazy. And they were from, you know, Frito and Kellogg's down to, you know, sort of, you know, small products and some established retailers. So that were doing private labels. So it was incredible to see that. So you learn pretty quickly. And, you know, look, and I was, you know, heartened by seeing brands like Vitamin Water and even Method and some of these brands that had a lot of competition, but managed to build a brand and get out in front of it and kind of be, have that first mover advantage. And I think that's one of the important things about it is number one, to build a really solid brand with consumer engagement. And then, you know, the obvious thing is innovation. You have to keep changing and evolving, you know, as Somebody that I'm close to always reminds me is, you know, by the time people have caught up or think that they've caught up with you, you have to already be ready to move on to the next thing. And so, look, we're three months in, but I can tell you we're already thinking about a couple of different types of innovation around what we're doing to continue to evolve and bring something new to the market. 
And then Keith, last question here. What's a book you've read that's changed your perspective and why? When I launched Pop Chip, somebody gave me a book on a great brand in the UK called Innocent. And it's a smoothie brand that had launched in the UK. And somebody gave me the book. And I think it took me about four or five months after I launched Pop Chips before I actually had time to read the book. And I read the book over a weekend. And it was a, the story of, of the start of Innocent. And it was so engaging. And I found it to be such a great learning experience for me in terms of building what we were doing at Pop Chips and even now with Right Rice, that I every employee we hired in the Pop Chips days, that was part of their welcome gift, was the book. And they had to read it and come back with some learnings and talk to the rest of the team about it. And it was just a super inspiring book. It was a, It's about a brand that had a great personality and culture and just their reason to be. And it, it was just so, so inspiring for me that I even to this day think of it as a, it's just a, it's a great read for people that are entrepreneurs and want to think about building a real authentic culture. Awesome. Well, Keith, thanks for joining the show today. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Keith for joining us today. I highly encourage you to check out Right Rice next time you're at Whole Foods. It's actually really, really good. As always, this podcast is ad-free because I despise podcast ads. So if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could help support us with a two-second rating and review. You can also learn more about Keith and Right Rice on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Hu. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.